Well, good morning. I'd like to invite our two through four-year-olds to be dismissed at this time to Toddler Nursery and Children's Church, those who will be remaining in the sanctuary. If you would please turn to Leviticus chapter 1. Leviticus chapter 1. Somebody was asking since I was out ill, and I want to pause and thank he. I don't think he's in here. I think he's in the back. Shane McGuire for filling in for me while I was gone. He did a, a great job. Um, somebody asked, say, look, it's been a couple of weeks. You're feeling better. How much time do you think it's going to take today? And I said, well, I, I have three sermons I'm supposed to be. If we're going to stay on schedule, I have three. No, I'm kidding. We're not going to do that this morning. So we'll pick up where we left off. Leviticus chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. Then the Lord called Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, When any man of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of animals from the herd of the flock. And if his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer it a male without defect. He shall offer it at the doorway of the tent of meeting, that he may be accepted before the Lord. He shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering, that it may be accepted for him to make atonement on his behalf. He shall slay the young bull before the Lord, and Aaron's sons and the priests shall offer up the blood and sprinkle the blood around the altar that is at the doorway of the tent of meeting. And he shall then skin the burnt offering and cut it into its pieces. And the sons of Aaron, uh, the priest, shall put fire on the altar and arrange wood on the fire. And then Aaron's sons, the priest, shall arrange the pieces, the head and the suet, over the wood which is on the fire that is on the altar. Its entrails, however, and its legs he shall wash with water, and the priest shall offer up and smoke all of it on the altar for a burnt offering, an offering by fire of a soothing aroma to the Lord. But if his offering is from the flock of the sheep or of the goats for a burnt offering, he shall offer it a male without defect. He shall slay it on the side of the altar northward before the Lord, and Aaron's sons, the priest, shall sprinkle its blood around the altar. And then he shall cut it into its pieces with its head and its suet, the priest shall arrange them on the wood which is on the fire that is on the altar. The entrails, however, and the legs he shall wash with water. And the priest shall offer all of it and offer it up on the, uh, in smoke on the altar. It is a burnt offering, an offering by fire of a soothing aroma to the Lord. But if his offering to the Lord is a burnt offering of the birds, he shall bring his offering from the turtle doves or from the young pigeons. The priest shall bring it to the altar, wring off its head and offer it in smoke on the altar And its blood is to be drained out on the side of the altar. And he shall take away uh, its crop with its feathers and cast it beside the altar eastward to the place of the ashes. And then he shall tear it by its wings, but he shall not sever it. And the priest shall offer it up in smoke on the altar on the wood, which is uh, in the fire. And it is a burnt offering, an offering by fire of a soothing aroma to the Lord. Let's pray together. Father God, thank you for your word. Father, thank you for its truth. Father, thank you for the goodness that you show to us by giving us a record of these things from the past. Father, filling them with great and beautiful pictures of your son Jesus and his love and compassion toward us. This morning, as we walk through this together, this unusual text for most of us seems so foreign and strange to our modern ears. Father, may we See the great fulfillment of Christ and your word as you've promised to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Excuse me. So this morning, we want to see Jesus, our burnt offering. 
Jesus, our burnt offering. And something that I want you to notice from verse 2. It's very important for the whole of the book of Leviticus. As we kind of go through it, I'll try to remember to come back to it because... Distance is, is the pathway to forgetfulness. So, you know, we, if we only hear it in the first sermon, by the time we get to the 20 something sermon, we may have forgotten that we heard this. But this is incredibly important for the whole message of the book of Leviticus. And it's this. It's the issue of the individual and the community. I want you to notice here in verse two, look what it says. It says, speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, so this is the commandment that, that Moses is supposed to be giving to the people of Israel in relationship to this worship and to these offerings. When any man of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of animals from the herd or the flock. And you say, okay, well, what, why is that such a big deal? There's something that gets lost in the English translation here that's incredibly important. And so the phrase, when any man... The word for man here in this text in the Hebrew is singular. This denotes individual responsibility in worship. So Moses is speaking a commandment to the nation of Israel, and he's speaking it as such that every individual person who's responsible is supposed to come and participate in this kind of worship. No one is exempted. No one's left off the hook. Every individual needs to hear this command, heed the word of Moses and participate in this kind of worship. Now, just go ahead and fast forward. True going throughout the rest of Leviticus. And so, like I said, I'll try to remember to come back to that point, because if we're not careful, we get misconceptions about this this kind of worship and the command for worship and the offerings that are given. And we think, oh, that's a nation of Israel thing. That's a collective thing. You know, maybe not everybody was involved in that. No, if any man, singular, all of you as individuals, this is what you need to do. Now, interestingly, though, when you move to the very next phrase. You shall bring. I really wish our English Bibles would reflect this better. But in English, the word you can be singular or plural if left to itself. It's context that determines this. And given that they just talked about individual men, you might would think in an English hearing that the you there is also singular. However, in the Hebrew text, it's plural. For those of you good Texans and deep south folks, y'all. That's what that should translate in your text. For those of you who had the great misfortune of being born north of the Mason-Dixon line, use guys. So, which is just weird. I'm sorry, it is. I don't mean to pick a fight from the pulpit, but that just sounds strange. Y'all, you all, it's plural. So you have this singular reality. Every individual is responsible for worship. And all of you together are to do this thing the same way. Collectively, as a community, there's a communal aspect of worship. So what is this telling us right out the gate in the book of Leviticus that actually is, is it kind of threads its way through everything else that happens in the book of Leviticus? The choices we make individually impact the larger community of worship. None of us are out on an island by ourselves as Christians. What you do or don't do with the gifts that have been given to you, 
What you do or don't do with your spiritual life of sacrifice. What you do or don't do in your one another's, as they're talked about in the New Testament, toward those that you are in community with has great impact on everyone else. Now, I know not everybody's in it, but I'm going to borrow something from my Wednesday night class that I'll be talking about this upcoming Wednesday. The Lord has given us a variety of means of grace to allow the holiness that's been gifted to us, which is what Leviticus is about, the holiness that's been gifted to us to be manifest to those around us. We don't work toward holiness. We have been made holy by Christ. And the means of grace that have been given to us to manifest that holiness are not works that we do. When you read the scriptures and the scriptures are a means of grace, you are not working unto the Lord toward holiness. You are using a gift that's been given you by God to display the holiness you already have. You say, Philip, what's the point of that? Well, one of the means of grace, one of the gifts that God has given to display holiness to his people is corporate worship. When we come together in this environment, particularly this environment. And we commit ourselves to public praying, public reading of scripture, public hearing of the word, participation at the right times in the ordinances slash sacraments of the faith. When we do that together. This is not a work that we're doing. Oh, I have to go to church today. No, I get to go to church today. And when we use our corporate worship as a weapon. I didn't like what they did. I don't like the decision they made. I don't like the songs that they sing. I don't like the sermon that he preached. I didn't like the way that he pointed out that thing that's going on in my life, even though he doesn't know what's going on in my life. But it sure did make me feel really uncomfortable. And I felt like he was talking to me. So I just want to hear that stuff anymore. So I just won't go. We're viewing the means of grace of God as works we do and weapons we use rather than gifts that we participate in. And we need to understand that this giving of the law here in Leviticus is a giving of the reality of the gift of God of corporate worship. Every one of you is individually responsible to worship God rightly, but you all must do it together. And it's a gift. God has given us a profound gift. And it's a beautiful thing. And that's what's happening. The setup for this, the type and shadow of this is happening in the intentional use of the singular and the plural back to back in this command of worshiping. And that just runs through Leviticus. So let's talk about this first offering, this burnt offering. I want you to notice the pattern of the offering. We find this in verse three. It says, if his offering is a burnt offering from the herd. Now, it could be from the herd, could be from the flock. It could also be from the birds. We're going to take the general principles that apply to all of those. We're going to hone in specifically on the larger animal sacrifices that have to do with being cut and skinned and that sort of thing to get our bigger points across because that's the preference here in the text. But for graciousness and mercy and compassion, God understood that there would be those who lived in such an impoverished way. They did not have those kinds of animals to offer. Here's the thing, friend. The beautiful thing is, is that God calls for us to make sacrifice. 
But God calls for us compassionately to make sacrifice. He does not look with disdain on the offering of the poor compared to the rich. And those who are wealthy to have large herds and those who are so poor they had no animal like that at all were all welcome to worship God. It's a beautiful thing. We could go off on a tangent. I could preach a totally different sermon related to that, but it's not in my notes, and so I'm not going to do it. So, but I want you to notice this pattern that they establish in verse three. First, I want you to see the narrow qualifications for the offering. The offering should be from the herd or the flock. That's the preference. In other words, it should not be a wild animal. We don't want you to go out into the field and get into some sort of a stand and wait around and hunt some wild beast that you don't know the condition of and the status of and kill it and then bring it in. No, we want you to go among the animals that you have domesticated, the animals that you've seen born, the animals that you've begun to raise, the animals that will chiefly be supplied for your food source and for your trading source with other nations. And I want you to go to those because you know them and you're aware of them and you have an understanding of them. And I want you to find one from the ones that you've raised, not a wild animal, one from the flock or from the herd. And here's what I want you to find about that animal when you go look for it. It needs to be a male. And it needs to be without flaw. It needs to be flawless. It needs to have no blemish on it. It needs to be without defect. You can't know that with a wild animal. You can't know that. You spend all that time trying to hunt one down and you kill one and you get up on it and you see that it has something wrong with it and you got to wait again to go find another animal. No, you are fully and keenly aware of these animals that you've been caring for. I want you to go find the one that doesn't have anything wrong with it. In other words, your best one. Your best one. So this is the narrow qualifications for the offering. But then I also want you to see as we continue through the rest of the first part of the section, verses four and on the place and the purpose of this offering, the place and the purpose of this offering. So what are you supposed to do with this animal once you get it still there in verse three? You're supposed to offer it at the doorway of the tent of meeting. So you're supposed to bring it to the doorway of the tent of meeting. And you're supposed to bring it to the presence of God. Remember, this tabernacle, this temporary dwelling place, is the place on earth where God meets man. It's very much a shadow and a type of incarnation. God's physical presence on earth. How do you have the physical presence of a spiritual God? Well, we know from the New Testament, he dwells in flesh. He puts on human flesh and dwells among us. In the Old Testament, all they had was the tabernacle. The presence of God there. Later, it became the temple. We could get into the weeds here and we could talk about one of the great reasons God did not want a house built for him. Because David was wanting to build a place of permanent location. Friends, our God is omnipresent. He doesn't have a permanent location on earth. The tabernacle would be broken down and moved and set back up someplace else. Why? Because God was where his people were and his people was where God was. God dwelt among his people. And his people weren't always at one centralized location. 
And so we see that there's this meeting with God in his presence. And why did they do this? Again, here at the end of verse three and then moving onward. That the one making the offering might be accepted before the Lord. And, and that's and that's the goal. When when we engage the Lord. Our longing and our desire is acceptance by God because we know and we understand that in our fallen sinful condition, there should be a barricade between us and God. Our sins should have created a separation between us and our God that he hides his face from us and he does not hear us. Abundance of truth about this, both in the Old and the New Testament. And our longing when we come into the presence of God is that we come into the presence of God in such a way that he accepts us being there. But we know that we have a natural barrier between ourselves and our God. And so that's why all of this is being said. Moses is giving them gracious instruction on how they can stand rightly in the presence of God and not be rejected because of their sin, because of their impurity, because of their profanity and their lack of holiness. Remember, that's the distinction. If you're with us a couple of weeks ago in the introduction, A thing is either holy and acceptable to God or profane and unacceptable to God. And in our sinful, impure condition, we are profane. We are unacceptable to God. We need to be in a condition of holiness, acceptable to God. And Moses is explaining to them, if you want to be accepted in the presence of God, you must be holy. Here's what that needs to look like. Here's the steps that we can go through to make sure that when you stand before God, you are considered holy. And then I want you to notice in verse four, there's a laying on hands of the head of the burnt offering. That the offering itself might be accepted for him to do what? To make atonement on his behalf. Now, this word in the Old Testament for atonement is a little tricky. It doesn't have such a a strict use like it does in the New Testament. Most of the time, most often, it's used in describing the removal of sin. And there might still be a little bit of that here. Occasionally, though, and I think it's more of what's going on here, it's used for a purification or a presenting a thing before the Lord. And that seems to be more of what's happening here, though the other is often very much implied. And so that's the that's the pattern. This is how the offering should be given. It has very narrow qualifications, has a very specific place, and it has a very specific purpose as to why it's happening. Now, let's take a look at the sacrifice itself, because the details of the sacrifice are incredibly important for us to understand the picture of Jesus in this offering first. And for some of you, this may come as a shock. But if you read this carefully and closely enough, you'll see that it is the case. The one making the offering is the one that slays the animal. Hear this. Look, he not talking about the priest, still talking about the one bringing the offering. He shall slay the young bull before the Lord. Stop thought. And then Aaron's sons, the priest, will offer up the blood and sprinkle that blood on the altar that is at the doorway of the tent of meeting. It is the offerer, not the priest, that sheds the blood, animal's blood, that cuts the animal's 
throat. In fact, if we were to continue reading through this and we were to see some of the other things that are going on here, we see in a moment, especially if it's one of the larger animals from the flock or from the herd, that the animal is skinned. It is also the offerer and not the priest that skins the animal. So he goes to his own flock or his own herd, animals that he has raised, that he has helped birth, that he has cared for, that he has fed, that he makes sure do not freeze to death in the desert cold that comes through the nights at some points. He investigates all of them. He finds the one that has no blemishes, the very best animal that he can find. He carries it to the entry of this doorway before the priest and he slits that animal's throat and he peels its skin off. This is before the priest does anything. So what does the priest do then? If the offerer does that, what does the priest do? Well, to kind of consolidate it, we see it throughout the rest of these verses. But to consolidate it, here's what happens first. And this is not stated explicitly here. It's implied and it is explicitly stated later in Leviticus. The priest examines the animal to make sure it truly has no blemish. Yes, you as an individual can make an investigation as to whether or not your animal is unblemished enough to be an offering. But before it can truly be accepted, the priest who is trained to identify must be the one to determine if that animal is worthy of sacrifice before you slit its throat. The priest has to do this. The priest then also makes the fire on top of the altar. The offerer does not make the fire. The priest makes the fire. The priest washes the animal's entrails. And once the animal's throat is slit, the priest uses a bowl to gather the the blood of the animal. Once this blood has been gathered... The priest is the one for who is responsible for sprinkling that blood on the altar. And then, of course, the priest is also the one responsible for taking the pieces of the sacrificed animal and placing them on the fire of the altar itself. So here's what I want you to notice. A life of worship, though done in community, is the responsibility of each individual. No one can offer your life for you as an act of worship. You cannot say what the Pharisee said to Jesus, but we have Abraham as our father. Abraham cannot offer your life for you as an act of worship. Your preacher can't offer your life for you as an act of worship. Your husband or your wife cannot offer your life for you as an act of worship. Your parent or your child cannot offer their life for you as an act of worship. You must bring the life and you must kill it. The killing of the offering yourself at the doorway of the tent of meeting is parallel to Jesus's teaching about if you want to be his disciple, what do you do? Do you take up somebody else's cross for them? No, you take up your own cross, which, by the way, is an instrument of death and sacrifice. No one takes that cross up for you. It's something that you must do yourself. So what we have here is a participation of worship where everyone's hands are bloody, the offerer and the priest. No one is without participation 
in this. By the way, great theologians of old, I'm getting ahead of myself, but great theologians of old have all said you can never own your portion of the cross of Jesus Christ if you do not also own your part in the killing of Jesus Christ. And this, friends, is very much reflective of the reality of the offering found in the very first chapter of the book of Leviticus. The priest does not do all the work for you. You also are complicit in the death of the animal that is offered. I killed my sacrifice. And whose sin was it that held the nails in place upon the cross? And so I want to give you a quote about this life as offering and worship and how it's connected from Leviticus to the New Testament book of Romans. G.K. Bill and D.A. Carson wrote an exceptional work called A Commentary on the New Testament Use of the Old Testament. And speaking about Paul's statement from Romans 12, 1 and 2 about a, a life of offering of, uh, of worship and sacrifice. He said, the apostles appeal that we present our bodies as a sacrifice, especially recalls the sacrifices of thanksgiving that are found here in Leviticus and other places. This sacrifice is not the surrender to God of that which is right uh, uh, by right ours. Rather, it is the yielding of the whole of our bodily life and thanksgiving to our creator who not only has made us and formed us, but also has given himself for us and to us in Christ. This sacrifice is the mere opening of our life to embrace to the embrace of God's love in Christ. The concept of surrender of bodily life as sacrifice, which transcends and supplants any offering of grain or animals, has its root here in the law and in the prophets and in the writings. This is the beautiful thing that we see This is their act of spiritual worship. And it was bloody and it was messy and everyone was involved. No one was excluded. So let's talk then for a minute as we get ready to close about Jesus as the fulfillment of this picture of the burnt offering. There's the obvious aspects, the stuff that's real easy to see. First, he's from the flock. This is the language the Jewish people would have used. He's of the flock. They had a shepherd who was the Lord. There are goats who are on the outside. There's wild animals and wild beasts on the outside, by the way. Sorry, looking around the room. That's us, the Gentiles. That We were the wild beasts and we were not part of the flock. And they needed someone from among the flock to be a sacrifice. And what were the qualifications in Leviticus of the sacrifice? He had to be male without defect. It's the perfect description of Jesus and his flawless, sinless perfection. And so these are the very obvious ones. It gets a little less obvious as we continue to unpack the things that are happening here in Leviticus 1. I want to spend just a moment on the idea that the offering is supposed to be skinned. There's two chief concepts found in the scripture that point directly to the gospel and the work of Jesus Christ, that pivot around this idea of the skinned animal that's been sacrificed. One is found in Genesis chapter 3, specifically verse 21. After Adam and Eve fall into their great sin, and they're about to be cast out of the garden, and they're naked and they're ashamed. They're publicly humiliated because of the awareness of their sinful condition before God Almighty. And they don't want to see each other or him in that way. God, in an unprecedented act of mercy and compassion, 
covers them with animal skins, which, by the way, means by implication, he killed a couple of animals to cover them with the skins of those animals so that they would not be naked and ashamed. He's covering over the reality of the sin that they lived in by offering something else in their place. He could have left them in that condition and sent them out of the garden exposed and ashamed. But instead, he killed something else besides them and used the thing he killed to cover up the reality and consequences of their sinful rebellion. We see that in Genesis. And friends, when we move into the New Testament, especially the writing, uh, writings of the apostles and the letters of the New Testament, we get the language of being clothed in the righteousness of Jesus. We take off this broken reality and we put on an outward covering from a different sacrifice that was not us that now makes us be able to stand unashamed before God. And friends, they didn't waste any of the stuff in these offerings. Someone would have worn that skin. They would have used it to make a blanket or a covering or a coat or a cloak or something. That's what they would have done. They would have clothed themselves with the skin of these sacrificed animals. But the key point, the larger point, the greater point, the point that points the the most to Jesus is the issue of the blood that we see here in this text. It says that once the offerer sacrifices the animal, notice what it says. I want you to see. It talks here about the priest being the one to gather the blood. Friends, if you bring a large bull or sheep or some medium sized to large animal. And you cut it in such a way that it's a clean, ethical death, which we have great historical records outside of the scripture that that's how. The nation of Israel would do these sacrifices as ethically as possible so that the animal suffered as little as it had to. There's going to be a lot of blood really fast. And it says here that they would gather this blood in bowls under the animal. They would fill up large containers with this animal's blood. That's what the priests would do. And then what would they do with this blood? It says here that they would sprinkle this blood on the altar. Really hard word to translate, by the way. I know that there's a lot of different denominational perspectives about sprinkling and how that connects to the Old Testament idea of sprinkling blood on the altar. This word for sprinkling is really a hard word to translate. Never a good idea to build whole theological grids off of hard words to translate. Just want to throw that out there. Because when we think about sprinkling, you know, sprinkle, sprinkling, you know, little baby, you know, you're doing your thing, sprinkle. Probably not what this word means. Just want to throw that out there. Let's get the Western mindset. You don't sprinkle from a large container bowl. Hey, we got this big old bowl. Sprinkle. No, that's not what they did. What did they do? This blood was gathered in these large bowls and then it was sprinkled. 
the way that's translated, onto the corners of the altar and allowed to run down all the sides of the altar into the ground beneath it. That's not sprinkling the way we think of sprinkling. Better word might be tossed. They threw the blood onto the sides of the altar and the corners and they let it run. There was so much it ran down the altar. Altar's big enough to put a large animal that's been cut into pieces on top and burn it up. It's a lot of blood. They're not sprinkling. So let's get that out of our minds. They've tossed this bucket of blood onto the altar. And it's covering the sides of the altar before the animal is burned. Why does that matter? Why does that matter? I want you to understand something this morning that we miss because we don't visualize how the offering worked. The blood was not burned up. It wasn't thrown on top of the altar. It was thrown on the sides of the altar and allowed to run down to the ground. The offering was put on top where the fire was. It was consumed. The blood was not. It was on the sides and on the corners, not on the top where the fire was. So let's gain a full picture of Christ and the use of this blood. The representative flesh of the sacrifice was consumed by fire. Only after the sacred space of worship was covered with the substitutionary blood of that same sacrifice. Remember the picture of fire on top of the altar throughout the Old Testament is the picture of God's consuming wrath. This is for appeasement. This is for uh, being uh, allowed to be in the presence of God. This is for the removal of impurity and the move towards holiness. And that which is impure is consumed. It's destroyed. The animal is put on the offering altar top with the fire and burned. A picture of God's flame of fire of wrath against impurity and profanity consuming that which is not holy. So what remains? The blood. The blood remains. And why is that of value? In the Hebrew context, life is found in the blood. It even says it explicitly in the Old Testament. Life is in the blood. The blood that is poured out is all that remained of the offering that was consumed. The life of the worshiper is now considered pure before God because the brokenness of flesh has been done away with. My flesh is broken. My life is broken. I am impure. I am profane. I am not holy in this body of flesh. I have exercised sin in the way of my father, Adam. And now my sin manifest by my physical brokenness demonstrates my separation from God. This animal has become my substitute and this animal's flesh has been consumed. It's been burned away by the fire of God. And all that remains of this animal is the very essence of his life, his blood. And that blood, friends runs back into the ground of the sacred space, picturing the undoing of the curse of Eden. Because when God spoke the first curse to man, what did he say was going to be cursed? Did he say man was going to be cursed? What did he say was going to be cursed? Cursed is the ground because of you. The very cosmos itself 
will not respond the way that it should because you have rebelled against me. And so in this act of offering a sacrifice, the very first thing the priest does is take the blood of the substitute and throw it on God's mercy seat, the holy altar of God. And that blood runs down into the cursed soil and it makes that space sacred and holy. The curse is undone in that space. That ground is no longer cursed. That ground has now been made holy by the blood of the sacrifice. And God's wrath consumes the broken flesh. And all that remains is man is essentially now standing in a remade Eden, a holy space before God. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. Everything has now gone full circle. The life of the worshiper is represented by the blood of the sacrifice. The blood returns to the dust and dies on behalf of the worshiper so that the worshiper might live and stand flawlessly before holy God. So in this, hear us, it is our sins that were the knife that shed the blood of Christ. And he, as our sacrifice, covered the sacred space of our broken lives with his blood. His flesh was consumed by the wrath of God on our behalf. His righteousness has become a skin covering for us. And he, as our priest, has poured out his own blood on our behalf that we might receive a standing of holiness because of before God because of the work that he did. And what is the only thing that we brought to the, uh, to the situation? What is the only thing that we brought to the equation of this? We brought the sin that slaughtered the animal in the first place. Friends, there's such a rich, beautiful picture of the redeeming work of Jesus found in this first chapter of Leviticus. And everything else that happens in Leviticus builds off of this call. If you want to have atonement, if you want to stand holy before God, the sacredness of the space that you stand in must be such that God allows you to be there. And you, friend, cannot be there on your own. You can't stand there. Someone else has to purify all of that for you. And I want to clue you in. The reason they had to keep making these sacrifices over and over and over again is because, as the writer to the Hebrews says, the blood of bulls and goats in no way, no way can satisfy the Lord. No way. But there is one. Who is both sacrifice and priest. Our sin slew him. His grace saved us. And he made our broken lives a sacred, holy space. Not because of any work we had done. But because of all the work he had done for us. Let's pray together. Father God, thank you. Thank you for the splendor and the beauty of what Jesus has done for us. Father, thank you that it is pictured here deeply in the book of Leviticus. 
We see it from the offering. We see it from the communal nature of worship. We see it from individual responsibility. We see it from the skinning of the animal. We see it from the pouring of the blood. We see it from the burning of the offering. We see it from the redemption of the space. Father, thank you that quite loudly and very clearly you scream to us grace and salvation and redemption in Christ even from something so foreign to us as a sacrificial system of Leviticus. Father, forgive us when we work and when we strive and when we put forth ungodly effort at trying to make ourselves holy. Father, thank you that holiness is not something that we work toward, Holiness is something that you've made us to be as a gift of grace through the work of Jesus Christ. Father, forgive us when we try to manipulate and work toward manifesting that holiness in our lives rather than resting in the joy-filled gift that is worship as one of the means of grace. Father, help us view our walk with Christ in an entirely different way. One filled with mercy and hope and joy and peace. Father, not one marked by painstaking striving and frustration and anxiety. Father, let us rest in the fullness of the truth and the promise that you are making us a holy people. Not by our efforts, but by the unparalleled grace of Jesus Christ. And we thank you for it in his name. Amen. I invite you to stand as we sing a song of response.